It was good to sing that hymn about Scripture and about the importance of the Holy Spirit shining on or what we call illumining the Scripture. Just as the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of Scripture in the first place, we need the Holy Spirit to show us the meaning of Scripture. There are times when we're approaching something in preaching, might be, say, the, the story of the prodigal son. And the story's rather plain, and the matter's fairly simple, so it's primarily how is, how is it to be applied. Then there are other times when we come to the Scripture when the matter itself, the content, is difficult and obscure, and maybe people can approach it in altogether different ways. That's the case today, and it's always the case when we're looking at prophetic Scripture. I began last time looking with you at Matthew 24, this very important chapter that literally is about the end of the age. We tried to lay down some general principles there. I think I'm going to back up and actually start at verse 9, even though 15 through 28 are the concern today, but maybe we'll just back up a bit of what some of what we covered and, and then go forward. That's helpful a little bit to get things in context. And what we're dealing with today is very rooted in what's already been said and in some things that are going to be said that we'll try to consider over the next couple of weeks, these important scriptures that give us a real view of what God is doing in the world in days since that time and even days yet to come. Listen to God's holy word. It's Jesus Christ himself speaking shortly before his death. Just outside of Jerusalem is where he's addressing his disciples. Verse 9, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And now the passage we want to consider more directly this morning. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you this ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, 
There he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. This is the Word of God in prophecy that's important for us to hear. Father, give us your spirit and all the confusing ways of thinking about this. Allow us to think carefully about what is being said in its plainest sense. For Jesus' sake, amen. In 2002, I noticed how Time Magazine had a really spectacular article. Usually these magazines will do something at Christmas or Easter, but this was not at one of those holidays when Time ran a cover story titled, The Bible and the Apocalypse, Why More and More Americans Are Talking About the End of the World. Well, it wasn't too hard to understand because, of course, in 2002, that was in the wake of September 11th, 2001. And people were indeed casting about and asking themselves, what in the world is going on in our times when two of the tallest skyscrapers in our nation can be brought down and the Pentagon attacked and these things happening all in the same terrifying, unbelievable day? That article, as it went on, mentioned a number of things about the Bible and what it says, and it prominently mentioned a series of books that was very popular right around then books that many of you may be familiar with called the Left Behind series, which sold millions of copies. Many millions of copies were sold of these books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. They were novels. They were fictional accounts, developments of what these men understood or thought was a correct understanding of what would happen near the end of the world. Well, even in their very title, of course, the title Left Behind featured what you may know is, is a significant aspect of that scheme of the end of the world, which says that a so-called rapture will occur in which Christians are taken out of the world. And then history continues for a phase of, of time until the final and conclusive events unfold with a final visible appearing of Christ. Well, there are many Christians who take that to be the right way to understand anything that's said in the Bible about the end of the world. I don't follow it. Many of us do not. It's a scheme. It's an understanding that was developed in the mid-19th century. It doesn't go back into the ancient days of the church, and it's built primarily on what you may do with an understanding of certain verses in the book of Daniel. You start with Daniel, and you work outward to develop a plan that you have to put over the rest of Scripture. Now, I don't impugn the motives of those who believe that that is the right way to understand Scripture, but we don't think it's accurate. The concept of the end as taught by Jesus in his prophetic Olivet Discourse here that we've begun to study in Matthew 24 and as believed upon by the vast majority of all Christians through many centuries of time is a scheme that believes there will indeed be a visible, dramatic, final, conclusive appearing of Jesus Christ in history. But it is a one great event that brings the end. It's not a two-stage or a three-stage event. 
in which Christ actually appears for Christians first and then for everyone else, and we just don't see it that way. In fact, the passage that is most often cited as that, that secret removal of the Christians is, of course, 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you would examine that alone, you would find a passage there about what has to be the most public, loud, unbelievable, noticeable, unmistakable event that's ever going to come, the descent of Christ with the shout of the angel and the trumpet of God. Nothing secret about it. It's the final appearing of Christ that will bring our world into a state of judgment and unbelief and what other passages call a a remaking of the cosmos, 2 Peter 3, to prepare that eternal state in which we'll dwell with God forever. Well, I'm not here to debate that scheme today, but I am here to look at these words of Jesus which must be at the core of of how we understand the Bible's teaching about the end of the world as we know it. Certainly, I hope you would agree, and this is a solid principle of of biblical interpretation, that we start with that which is the clearest. We certainly start with things that our Lord Himself taught if we want to know about any subject. And what Jesus taught about a subject would be what we would call a ruling narrative, a guiding narrative for anything else that is taught, and it would certainly overrule symbolic, obscure, or debatable parts of the Old Testament. So we start here with what Jesus taught and try to get from it the best of the predictions that he gives us that will help us perhaps go forward into other passages later on to places like Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation. Well, last time we began with Matthew 24, as Jesus answered the opening questions, I said they were so important to the whole chapter, the questions the disciples asked about when the temple would fall. He predicted it would fall. They said, when? And they added the question, when will be the appearing, your appearing, your assumption of your visible rule is what they were saying. They expected this to mean a single event. They expected that if the temple fell, that was the end, and there couldn't be anything more catastrophic than that, so it must be the end of the world. Well, Jesus responded to them, as I said last time, to tell about events here that are intermingled in history, some portions of which more in the near range and others far out. But he didn't stop at every passage and say, now this one's going to happen in 40 years, but this one's a long ways off. I said last time if you tried to mark the near-at-hand passages in yellow and the far-off passages in blue, you'd end up with a mess in your Bible because some would be overlapped and they'd be green. That's the way this is. It's, it's a difficult kind of thing to segment or take apart or dissect in a scientific manner. Prophecy is meant to be pictorial, flashing for us things that that we see all together, which actually in real history will be more separated. And so there are things here that will happen as general signs and general issues that will arise throughout all of history right to the end when Christ comes. And that primarily occupied us last time through verse 14, what Jesus called the birth pains. Just quickly seeing those, the false religious claims that would be made, wars and natural disasters, persecution of believers and the apostasy of false believers, and then in 14, the teaching of the gospel, 
to every nation, something we see happening in amazing ways today, although we can't say whether every language group or every corner of every nation has been reached yet. Well, even as these things increase in intensity, as in many ways we could say, and I suggested last time they are doing in our day, they still don't allow us to fix dates. That's not what Jesus was about here, and he's going to deny that in the strongest ways later on in this chapter. What they are calling to us is not date setting, but patient endurance and hope in him who is coming, a knowledge that the end will come when God has sovereignly understood it to be ready and Christ returns visibly and powerfully. And until then, we are to hope in him and to carry things forward that he has given us to do, knowing that his grace is sufficient for us to carry on in any time of danger or crisis that may come our way. Now, particularly today, this theme of danger or tribulation, as the word is translated, the Greek word thlipsis, it's a T-H-L word, kind of hard to say. Thlipsis is a word for tribulation, severe trouble, is what our passage is about here And first of all, I want to to put this point before you in the main uh, issue of this text, verses 15 to 21. And I would say in this passage, if we put a, a theme or a label over it, that Jesus is predicting shocking tribulation accompanying the fall of Jerusalem. I remind you, Jesus, as far as we understand it, was speaking about 30 A.D. or in the early 30s at can't be absolutely stated, but we would think 30 A.D. is the right date that he was speaking as he said these things, as he preached this sermon. Now, Matthew didn't write his gospel right there on the spot. In fact, it was about 30 years later that he wrote his gospel down. But a best, a best view or a best understanding of when Matthew wrote would be early 60s, mid-60s at the latest. Now, that means that both our Lord when he preached and the gospel author when he recorded this gospel were foretelling something that had not come about yet. There are those who would contend that this was something Matthew made up. Of course, they would have to say Jesus didn't even say it, that Matthew made it up and he made it up after 70 A.D. with events already behind him. That understanding and that view is largely not a credible one and it's not taken seriously by very many scholars. There were things that occurred here in 15 to 21. Hone in. You might say the lens kind of zooms right in on that first question. When is the temple going to fall? That, after all, remember, was the provoking question that started this chapter. And so we zoom in here on specific events. The whole flavor of this is something very specific and very, you know, place-specific, not broad in general. And we would understand that Jesus was talking about Judean events that were coming within the generation of those disciples. We think of 40 years as about a generation usually, whether all the disciples were still alive or not. Most of them were, as we understand their lives, alive still in 70. These are events painted with uncanny realism, predicting what would happen to Israel and the system of temple worship. And we know now, from our vantage point, that what was predicted did happen. We have, in fact, outside the Bible, very reliable evidence about this, particularly from a Jewish historian named Josephus, 
who kept careful records. Josephus was a Jew who cooperated with the Romans and was given a job by them, and he kept journals and records for the armies and other government agencies. Josephus describes how in about 67 A.D., which would have been very soon after Matthew wrote, a Roman military campaign that lasted just about three and a half years was unfolded, led by General Titus, a direct relative of the current Caesar, against Jerusalem, the Jewish wars, it's called. Rome had finally had its fill of the troublesome Jews in Palestine and said, enough, it's time to stamp them out. The zealotry, the the insurrection had, had risen to a level kind of like what happens in Iraq or such a country, revolutionaries running around, and Romans said, we're going to put this down. They marched in. They sent additional troops in, many more than were there before. And in 67, they began this siege that culminated, concluded in AD 70 with the devastating downfall of the city of Jerusalem and many of the towns nearby, and especially with the ruin of the temple. And it literally was taken down in the way that Jesus predicted. Now, here's the thing that many people, you know, you think of a long-ago war like that, and you think of modern warfare, you think, well, a little local crisis, it wasn't all that great in terms of as we measure wars. Well, it really was, because Josephus estimated, and we believe he is not just throwing numbers around wildly. There are other secular accounts that would say he was in the ballpark, certainly, if he wasn't right on the nose, that around 1.1 million Jewish lives were sacrificed in that war in a relatively small country and a relatively localized place. Now, we, we rightfully and respectfully mourn for 4,000 American troops lost in, in uh, Iraq. And what was it? 60-some thousand in Vietnam. And I believe, if I'm remembering history correctly, about 600,000 in the Civil War, the bloodbath that that was. That's still the Civil War times two is what we're looking at for deaths of Jewish people in this rather small area. It was indeed a terrible, devastating tribulation. Now, Jesus gave a specific sign, and, and here's why we know he's talking about local things, because he gets right down to cases in verse 15 and talks about something that was probably clearer to his first hearers than it is to us. We know generally what he's talking about, but we don't know specifically what he's talking about when he refers to the abomination that causes desolation spoken of in Daniel, let the reader understand. In other words, those of you who know your Bible will, will get a grip on what I'm predicting here. Something we can say that profaned the holy precincts of Jerusalem and maybe even the temple itself. Now, what precisely it was, we're not sure. We do know that something like this had come along even before this. Two centuries before the time of Jesus, there was another brief conquest that didn't wreck the city and it didn't drive the Jews out, but a Syrian ruler came in with his army and temporarily conquered Jerusalem. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Strange name. The thing you know about Antiochus Epiphanes and his campaign was Hanukkah. 
That came out of the Maccabean revolt that threw Antiochus and his Syrian rule out of Jerusalem. But briefly, while Antiochus was there two centuries before Jesus, he deliberately mocked the Jews by setting up a temple of Zeus in the temple court, and he actually went in with pigs, which of course were unclean animals, deliberately to mock and profane the altar of God and offered swine on God's altar as sacrifices to Zeus. Well, that's the kind of thing the Jews had in mind. It probably wasn't that exact same thing. We don't know what the sign looked like in AD 66, although Luke might be helping us because when Luke gives his account of this same sermon, he has some other words added. Luke 21, 20 puts in the mouth of Jesus there a clarification, and he says there, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. The abomination that causes desolation was something done by the Roman army. Whether the fact that they were just present, ringing the city with strength, or bringing their standards into the temple district is not certain. But Jesus said, you'll recognize this sign when you see it. And when you see it, run for your life because you've got a narrow window and then you won't get away. Look at the vivid language he he gives here in describing why they should flee when they see the Roman troops and their insignia surrounding the city. He said there's no time to lose. Drop what you're doing. If you're on the top of your house, you know, there were stairs, by the way, on a Jewish house outside that went down uh, from the roof because the roof was used for living purposes. And he said, don't go back into the house. Don't open your bank vault. Don't look for your valuables. Run! Get away as fast as you can go, or you won't get away at all. And Jesus speaks words of compassion to those who won't be able to get away because he says they're going to be pregnant women and and those with little children who they have to bring along who won't be able to make it. What a terrible thing that even in in this prediction, he in his sadness and compassion saw that there were those that wouldn't be able to flee and many who wouldn't believe they needed to flee. By the way, we know from another historian of the time, a Christian historian named Eusebius, that many Jewish Christians did take Jesus' warning. There was a city called Pella on the east side of the river. There's a Pella in Iowa, which is named by Christian Reformed Dutch believers as their city of refuge. It's named for Pella on the east side of the Jordan where Christian believers fled when the Romans came. Now, maybe you think it's an exaggeration in this crisis, this time of first century devastation of Jerusalem, for Jesus to name it with this phrase, that it was a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. You say, well, I'm sure it was bad. I I don't want to be there. But was it really that bad? Well, I can only tell you that there are those who would estimate that if Josephus was accurate, that 1.1 million were were dead after that. You know, we think of things like the the Holocaust of World War II. You say, wait a minute, six million? Yes, but that's all of Europe. We're talking about a little tiny portion and a very small land with a mostly rural population and one or two cities of any that amounted to anything. And I'm not putting down the importance and the terror of Hitler's Holocaust against the Jews, but in its intensity, 
in its destruction of a small population in a limited place, Jesus was saying something accurate. Great distress unequaled. Horror. It was absolutely devastating. Do you know what the Romans did? You might think, well, they came with their advanced weapons and their catapults and their siege ramps. No, they, they said, we're going to take care of these people by the one sure way that always works. And we're going to spare as many Roman lives as possible when we do it. We're going to surround their city and we're going to sit there and we will starve them out. And that's exactly what the Romans did. They largely sat there for a couple of years with no crops being raised, no food going in from anywhere else. And you can imagine, the storehouses, the warehouses were gradually emptied and the people began to drop in their tracks from starvation. The descriptions are of bodies laying all over, untended, because those who were left were far too weak to bury the dead. There are absolutely terrible things told of mass suicides and and of mothers feeding on the bodies of their dead children and of people chewing leather as they were dying in Jerusalem. And it is said when the Romans came in, they, the battle-hardened Romans, were shocked at the piles of thousands of bodies that they found in the districts of Jerusalem. Now you say, why such a terrible thing? This is awful. Maybe if you're a little boy, you you get excited about this or something. But this is awful to talk about, isn't it? Why such devastation? Well, there's one deep answer. It was God's long predicted and patiently withheld but now coming wrath against a covenant people who had spurned him and disobeyed him and failed to repent before him for generation upon generation upon generation. It was also the cutting off and the ending of that Old Testament worship system of sacrifices and the temple because that sacrifice had been satisfied, it had been fulfilled. The book of Hebrews makes with great pains the argument that the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ was the great sacrifice once for all, and you don't turn back to man-made sacrifices after that. So it was an end to a worship system and a whole way of coming to God that had lost its way by disobedience and sin. Shocking tribulation for the fall of of Jerusalem. Well, now in the second place, I take the side of many commentators. I'm not alone here. I want to take positions that are are well-documented, that are not my own vain ideas. Many commentators see a subtle but a very definite shift occurring at verse 22. And if you look for a minute at verses 22 to 25, it's not abrupt. It's not a hard right turn. But there is there the idea that if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, they will be shortened. In other words, there's a conclusion to that. I've been talking about something local, something definite, It will happen and it will be over, Jesus is saying. And in the second place, as we look at verses 22 to 25, we we see, we sense here, especially as we put it all together with the whole chapter. Maybe you'll see this better in, in two more weeks with the whole thing laid out. But that tribulation, trouble is going to continue beyond that local time 
tempered by God's mercy until the final coming of Jesus Christ. Yes, the generation Jesus spoke to did witness the fall of Jerusalem, but that wasn't the end of it. Just remember, I included it for this purpose this morning. I went back and read from the general signs of what would be happening throughout all the age, verses 9 to 13 above. Persecution, put to death, hated by all nations, believers turning, you know, people who profess faith, turning against real believers and giving up themselves. Jesus is saying it's not just a local event in Jerusalem, even if that is the great, throbbing, painful climax of it. Keep in mind the picture I gave you last time as we look at prophecy of the mountain ranges, the the near mountains that appear, you know, bold in their relief, and the faraway mountains. This now is, is keeping the whole picture. It's like the zoom lens is going off Jerusalem and back out to the wider range. In verse 22, Jesus says, those few intense years of horrible suffering would be contained because if they continued that way, faith would never survive. The people of God would be annihilated. But Because God does have mercy on his people. Even in his terrible wrath, God is merciful. And so those days would be cut short in their intensity and their, their specific deaths that occurred with, with such awful and widespread numbers. But that climax typifies things that will still echo in various ways, worse in some places than other places throughout the world for coming centuries. All of church history, some would say, is like a painting with consistent splashes of crimson through the painting, all the way through the blood of the martyrs, which has been called, of course, the seed of the church. If you want to see God's work grow, you want to see God's church grow, kill its people. Oppose its people. It's true everywhere today that God's people are being opposed. The government of China just doesn't get it. You know, if they really wanted the Christians to go away, they would pour blessings on them. They would pour money at them. They would build sanctuaries that were glorious for them and say, anything you want, lots of Bibles, we'll get it for you. Instead, the government of China says, you can't print Bibles. We're going to persecute the pastors who, who are a stone in our shoe and and we're going to put people in prison, and we're going to do, make it as hard for you as we can, and the Christians are booming in China because that's what happens. But all through the centuries, and we can look at this with our backward glance across the 20th century with, with all the things that world wars and cataclysms have meant for dislocations and even exterminations of groups of Christian people. We have in our congregation Dr. Rapp who ministers in the Hungarian lands where there once was a wonderful, vibrant, reformed, biblical witness and the Second World War and communism smashed it. And now there's, there's hardly little threads left, but those little threads, those little creeks are starting to have more and more water run in them as the Holy Spirit reestablishes his church. This is the way the Scripture promises it would be. Acts 14 says, through many troubles, many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in, in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. You will, guaranteed. But don't forget, I have overcome this world. 
There's a world system that hates the cross. It hates Jesus Christ. It's it's opposed to him. It's a warfare in the heavens that's worked out here on earth in all kinds of conflicts. We cannot expect to avoid conflict and suffering and martyrdom and opposition for Christian faith in any era of history. And yet, when it happens, it doesn't tell us that history is spinning out of control, you see. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 1.5 and following teaches us that persecutions and trials will come, and in some means, some of it will be the judgment of God. But Paul wrote there and said, God's judgment is always right. God is always just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled. You say, well, that isn't always, you know, happening immediately. No, but in God's scheme it is. And what isn't seen immediately will be seen. In fact, that same passage, 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul goes on to say, it will be, it will be revealed when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with blazing fire. So in facing opposition and trials, you see, believers are actually being called into the fellowship of Christ. In fact, there are places where the New Testament says what an honor it is to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Now, we keep that straight in our minds. That doesn't mean we pay for our sins. You know, there are always some people who say, oh, man, things have really gone wrong in my life. God must be punishing me. I must be having to pay for my sin. Well, that's not a Christian understanding. Jesus Christ paid for our sins. He paid once for all. God doesn't ask us, there's no double indemnity. He doesn't ask us to pay again what Jesus has paid for. But he allows us to live in the world system that's still throbbing and hurting and bleeding with the same conflict that put Jesus on his cross and lets us taste on the very tip of our tongue the tiniest little droplet of that distilled bitter essence of suffering that Jesus had to drink a whole cupful and drink it to the very bottom. Romans 5 says that suffering does something good for us. It does something for us that wouldn't happen otherwise. It makes us strong. It teaches us what it is to persevere. It sorts out the false from the true. And in perseverance, Romans 5 says that gives way to character, and character gives way to hope. And hope is a way of faith taking a hold of the future, like reaching out and clamping your hand on that final event and say, I know it's true. I'll get from where I am to there because my God is true and he's guaranteed it. And so Romans 8 also speaks about trouble or sorrow or danger or famine or sword or nakedness. You remember the whole lineup of descriptions Paul gives in Romans 8 and how does he conclude? He says, none of them. Nothing from this whole assortment can separate any believer from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Old Testament triumphant statement, I think, is Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. A wonderful line in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, the hymn writer said, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, for I will be with you. 
your sorrows to bless, and I will sanctify to you even your deepest distress. Christians are people who learn how to sing a song like that and sing it with a note of joy. God has not abandoned us. History is going to vindicate all the troubles we go through. Now, a last point quickly here. It's hard to know always how exactly to divide this text up. It doesn't have easy and neat divisions. But I think you will see as we come at it next time, Lord willing, that there is a, quite a significant division at verse 29, and I'll explain that next time. But if we look at verses 26 to 28, I want to summarize what these verses say. They do have much to do with what we've just been looking at here. I summarize them this way. No trouble we ever face can make us miss Jesus' final return. No trouble we ever face will make us miss Jesus' final return. You see, when people are suffering, they're disoriented. They don't always have a good view of reality. Everything that's going on in the world centers on them. I'm hurting. I don't care about what the evening news says, you know. My wife is dying of cancer or whatever it is. And and the whole world centers right there. And so you get a skewed view. And and I think the Scripture is suggesting here that there are people who could be looking and saying, where's Christ? Isn't he going to bring this to an end? Does this event have some meaning? And maybe they'd even conclude that they had missed Christ. That he came and some other group of people, you know, greeted him and and they missed out. Well, in verse 26, Jesus is saying, if a false prophet ever comes to say that Jesus has already come out in the desert and you weren't there, or Jesus came in the meeting room of this secret society over here and you weren't there, don't believe him. Why do you know that's false? One reason only, because there will be nothing secretive or private about the final coming of Jesus Christ. The great day of the Lord, we're going to see this more next time, will come with a spectacular, historic, international miracle. And he closes here with two comparisons from nature. They, they may seem kind of strange, especially the second one. But Matthew 24, 27 first compares the coming of the Lord to lightning. Now, we can all visualize that, a summer lightning storm. Well, you know, you're at one end of Lancaster County, and you're pretty sure that, that somebody at the opposite end of Lancaster County is seeing the same jagged streak flash across the whole sky as lightning lightens the sky. Jesus says, that's how my coming will be. Something that lightens the heavens that everybody sees at the same time. Well, then the other comparisons, one that has been argued over, but it's really not so hard, even if it sounds strange. Verse 28, if you keep the correct word in here, and I don't know what Bible translation you have in front of you, but when it mentions birds in that translation, the birds ought to be vultures, not eagles. Some translations mistakenly say eagles. The NIV, we believe, has a correct, and the English Standard Version has it correct. Wherever there is a carcass or a body, Vultures will gather. Jesus, what a strange thing to say. What does that mean? Well, remember, Scripture isn't just a patchwork quilt of of unrelated things. He's talking about what he's just been saying about judgment coming, and he's saying, look, when there's a body of an animal that dies out in the desert, what is your first awareness that that has happened? Why, you look out and you see the sky and there are black dots floating around as the vultures are coming. By the way, eagles are not carrion animals, so that's one reason this isn't eagles. 
the vultures are there hovering over to say a death has occurred, and everybody sees it from a long distance. Well, I think those who interpret this as an understanding that we will see the coming of Christ. And that coming, you see, there's a very foreboding aspect, almost a macabre idea here in the vultures around the dead body. But Jesus is saying that that coming that's going to be a great thing for the believer is going to be like carrion beasts coming on a dead body for those who are spiritually unbelievers. And you'll see my coming, but for some it will mean judgment on them as they've already died spiritually. In either case, the appearance of Christ will not be missed at the end. It will be obvious. Every eye will behold him like the birds in the sky far off or the lightning across the heavens. And for now, we end by just reminding you that our world has been reduced to an arena where even other human beings, just like the Roman armies, are the instruments of Satan. Because Satan hates the things of God. And he uses nations, and he uses armies, and he uses international unrest and every kind of pressure within nations to tear away at the throats of Christians if he could do it. But we are convinced that the end of the world and our vindication in Christ will come when God sends his Son visibly in glory, and until then he promises we can hold on because he gives us the grace to do it. God's elect believers, this passage says, are safe in dangerous times. If our, we might lose our physical lives. That doesn't mean we're not safe. You can lose your physical life as a Christian martyr and be safe. God's elect believers are safe in dangerous times because the sovereign God of history, here's prayer, he orders events of nations in tumult, and he allows no man to pluck precious souls Christ has bought with his death out of his safe and strong hands that hold us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for assuring words how horrible it must have been when Jerusalem fell. And it is terrible in our times, the things we read of, the things we experience. Thank you for the knowledge that you're ruling, that there's a goal, and you will bring it to pass. Thank you for Christ, who's at the center of it all. We hold on to him for his sake and glory. Amen.